0: How well hydrated are you? Did you know the moment you experience thirst, you're already dehydrated? Dehydration can lead to a dip in both your physical and cognitive abilities. Stay ahead of the game and try out our friends over at SOS Hydration. SOS is a balanced electrolyte mix that helps you hydrate at three times the rate of water alone. Dr. Formulated SOS is an oral rehydration solution as effective as an IV drip. With only 3 grams of sugar, 10 calories, and added minerals, SOS is not only hydrating, but also great for boosting your immune system. Take SOS on the go with their easy-to-use stick packs and ready-to-drink bottles. Learn more about how you can stay hydrated with SOS Hydration by visiting their website, www.soshydration.com. You can also buy it online or pick some up at your local CVS or Walmart. Hi, I'm Lisa Davis. So glad you're listening to Naturally Savvy Radio. If you listen to the show, you know that about a year ago, my therapist recommended that I look into edibles. I like my therapist and I'm going to listen. And let me tell you, it's been amazing. I love edibles. I get a nice dark chocolate. It's got a nice uh, mix of uh, equal parts THC to CBD. And the reason I'm telling you this is because we have got the wonderful Dr. Jordan Tischler. He is a cannabis specialist, accomplished author, teacher, nationally sought-after speaker, and tireless patient advocate. Through his training in internal medicine and years of practice as an emergency physician, Dr. Tischler brings his knowledge, reason, and caring to patients at his practice, Inhale MD. Oh, I love that. And through his advocacy work at the local and national levels. Dr. Tischler graduated from both Harvard College and Harvard Medical School, trained at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and is faculty at both the Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Okay, if I read his whole bio, the show will be over. You're in a very impressive man. Dr. Tischler, welcome <laughs> to Naturally Savvy.
1: Thanks for having me. I um I always tell people, you know, if you go to Harvard 3 times in a row, which I did, um then then we call you preparation age.
0: <laughs> when did you first get interested in cannabis?
1: Oh, uh, That was a while ago. Um, you know, I was practicing as an emergency room doc for the VA, which I did for a total of about 15 years. And um, back, you know, in 2012, when Massachusetts started thinking, it was actually 2011, when we were starting to think about um, cannabis as a medicine, as a, as a, as a ballot referendum, that sort of led me to this aha moment. You know, I'd seen so many veterans whose lives have really been harmed by various substances. And let me say that on the top 10 list, that's really alcohol one through nine. Right. Um, and, you know, obviously alcohol is freely available for better or for worse. Um, but it really can be remarkably harmful. Um, that sort of led me to that moment where I said, you know, I've seen a bunch of guys who have cannabis use disorder, or the equivalent on, on their problem list, but I've actually never seen anybody sick from this stuff, you know, and if I'm seeing so many people who are sick from these other substances, this has got to be kind of a different somehow. Um, and that led me to thinking, well, you know, if there's really some evidence that this could be useful as a medicine, maybe I should find out about it. And that sort of sent me scurrying off into the literature. um, and, You know politically it's very common to say oh there's no data there's no science it's just the potheads whatever um so when I got to PubMed which is the database of all the science and I saw at the time that there were 23,000 studies I went what do you mean there's no data how am I going to how am I going to wrap my head around 23,000 studies wow you know 10 years later we're looking at 35,000 studies um and and so you know there's voluminous data and the real issue becomes how am i supposed to make sense of this um and so it took me several years of pun intended weeding through this to figure (laughs) out i mean because you know the problem is that there's bad studies and there's bias studies and there's studies that are funded specifically for the purpose of supporting the 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 prohibition and all of that stuff so you kind of really have to Read through this stuff very carefully. In fact, there was a a guy down at Yale who did a lot of these studies and I came to recognize his name because he would pop up on all these studies. And these studies would be sort of like, we have this idea that cannabis can be bad for you. Here's why. Here's the study that we did. Oh, if we found that cannabis is not bad for you, but you know, our conclusion, is cannabis is still bad for you? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's so frustrating. You know these people, and they're bent as opposed to the science, um, and and that helps you put these things in context. Thankfully, I think the research has really come a long way in the last ten years in terms of trying to get some of that bias under control. Um, we have other problems. We and we've now had. You know, the spate of what you could call ecological studies, they're sort of very descriptive. You ask a bunch of people uh, to download an app and say, I smoked some weed and I used it for these purposes and it did X, Y or Z for me. And that's all lovely, but it really isn't data. Um, it, it really is just a collection of stories and um you know, another expression that gets said is anecdotal evidence. And I think that's sort of like jumbo shrimp, right? I mean, anecdotes are great. They're stories, but they're not data. And they're not really evidence. They're the beginning of a hypothesis. Oh, I've heard that a 1000 people tell me that cannabis is good for their anxiety. Does that prove that cannabis is good for anxiety? No, it tells me that I should look into this in a more rigorous fashion. And uh, and I think we've got a actually, frankly, too many studies now of that kind of um, uh, high level, not very rigorous order. Um, And and what we really need is much more detailed studies that get into things like, you know, uh, prospective randomized double-blind control trials. And, And those are hard to do. They're very expensive and they require, really they require governmental funding Uh, As well as permission in the current status. Um, And that's hard to come by. You know, the government is really not interested at the moment in putting money behind this research.
0: You know, I'm wondering with the 23,000 articles that you weeded through. I love that. That was very funny. I love a good play on words. Was there a common denominator that you found even in the ones that were biased? I mean you mentioned the anecdotal with the anxiety, but was there anything that kind of stood out as like cannabis is has been beneficial for you know x y z
1: oh um yeah, I mean, I think that there, there are a whole range of things that people talk about where there's varying levels of support in the literature and and you know when people ask that question, I often point them to the um Summary report that was put together by the National Academy of Sciences back in 2017, because it really is a pretty good summary of where things were then. And things have changed, to be sure, but uh, but more incrementally. And I think that one of the things that was very instructive about that report um, was that they said, with regard to pain management, the evidence is incontrovertible, and that's their word, not my word. Oh, wow. Um, And so that was the first time that a government-sanctioned body had come along and said, there's no no point in debating this any longer, right? I mean, it's the first governmental body that said that that flies in the face of the criteria for Schedule One placement, which says there's no accepted use, right? So we have the government telling the government, but there are accepted uses. And then they get into sort of um, other uh illnesses and diagnoses like anxiety depression and ptsd and stuff like that where the evidence isn't quite as robust but they were clever and not biased about it and they simply you know enumerated where we had good evidence and where the evidence needed to be you know in some ways it was it was great because it it confirmed the past but it also enumerated the future. Okay, these are what the things that we need to answer in, you know, in the next 10 years. And so I think in many ways, it was a brilliant document, because it really set a roadmap. And we're, and we're going in that direction, I think, you know.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, I mentioned at the beginning, I do a combination of the CBD, THC, and it does help with pain, for me, it does help with anxiety. I just feel lighter. I, I giggle a little more. So my family is like, are you high? I'm like, no, I'm not high. I just feel better, you know, but they, they, there's still a stigma with them. Right. And it's, it's frustrating, you know, for my husband and my 17 year old daughter and my daughter is all about the rules. So I'm like, honey, it's legal. Like for in her mind, it's like, yeah, but at health class, they said marijuana is bad. I said, yeah, for teenagers, right? And is that true? Is it, isn't it it? Don't you need to be a certain age because of your brain development? Or No,
1: I think that there's a, a fair bit of evidence that, um, that there are several reasons why teenagers and even sort of young adults should, um, I don't want to say not use this stuff, but it, it depends on the why and the context. Uh, so, you know, what we know about teenagers is that their brains are still developing and that there is some evidence, it's not concrete, it's certainly not conclusive, that cannabis can alter structure in the brain, uh, particularly in these younger brains. And there's an inference that a structural change is a bad thing. Um, And I often respond to that by saying, you know, that's not a good inference. And in fact, maybe we're making X-Men, you know, maybe it's a positive. When we look at sort of much more, um, I think, helpful studies like the New Zealand study, which looks not at brain changes, but sort of life outcomes, you know, and these are not in patients. These are in, in young recreational users. But we've now got 40, 50 years of data saying that those people, didn't end up on skid row, that they appeared to follow their natural life trajectory. That is to say, some of them did become rocket scientists, most of them didn't. Then again, most people don't become rocket (laughs) scientists (laughs) anyhow. So, you know, there's that. Uh, I think that that's particularly helpful. We also know that the late teen years are the years in which most people who are going to develop a psychotic disorder develop a psychotic disorder. And so there's some question whether cannabis can either be a result of that or a contributor to that. And so again, it's not a good time period to be exposing the brain to that sort of stuff. Um, And then I I think that uh, there's also the risk of of, uh, physical dependence and and addictive behaviors. Um, And we know that um, the overall number for cannabis uh, for dependence is, is pretty low and low relative to other substances. So the best numbers there look like about 7%. Uh, compare that, say, to 15% with alcohol and 25% with opioids. By the way, remember, nicotine is the top on the list at 32%. Um, but the flip side is that most substances, that risk is constant throughout your life and cannabis is different. Cannabis, the, low, the, the risk is front-loaded. So for those teenagers, that risk is 18%, which is up there with cocaine and benzodiazepines. So their risk and the p- tier, particular time of life is just higher than if you make it to the ripe old age of 25. Once you get to 25, your risk is probably 2 to 3%, so much lower.
0: So to be safe, you'd want to wait till you're 25, I would say?
1: again it also depends upon the the context right so i've had moms come to me and say you know do you think we should put johnny on cannabis because he's having trouble in school because he has some anxiety around test taking and i say well you know is johnny otherwise a normal normal you know mentally capable person and the answer is yes and i say no you know that there are a lot of different ways to address that anxiety not least of which includes things like you know uh, you know stanley kaplan or khan academy or educational things as well as maybe some therapy i mean i wouldn't jump to this for a otherwise um intact individual without trying other things first On the other hand, you know, I have patients who say, look, you know, Johnny's having a lot of behavioral issues at school. Johnny has high functioning autism and, you know, some OCD. And, and, you know, that's a different situation because in that case, Johnny's just not got sort of the same life trajectory that – that we would expect for the first case.
0: You know, I'm thinking, Dr. Tischler. you know, for kids who are already or teens who are already on an anti-anxiety like you, that's, that's kind of a different situation, right? Because they're taking a medication already. And if you're using cannabis medicinally, and if you meet with the kid and you meet the parent, you know, you go over the history and it works. I don't, I don't see why that's an issue. They're already on a drug. It's like this stigma around it, it drives me nuts.
1: Well, I think that, you know, at least from my point of view, this there's no stigma. I mean, that is to say, I'm working beyond that at this point. But, but I think that the real issue is safety and how much safety, you know, how much we know. Um, so there are some medicines, you know, that they might be on that we have really good track records for. And if they're on those drugs, and they're doing well on them, then I think that there's some value in not rocking the boat. Sure. Um, on the other hand, if they've, you know, been seen for a number of years and they've tried a bunch of different medicines and doesn't seem to be working, then I think, you know, that makes a stronger case for sort of going a little further out on the limb. I also think, you know, that cannabis works better for some things than for other things. So for example, for pain management, I think it's pretty good. For anxiety and depression management, I think it's not actually all that good. Um, That is to say it may be better than nothing. But many patients come to me and they're on an SSRI or something like that and they've been on it a long time and frankly are doing fine on it, but they're they've kind of gotten it into their head that they shouldn't be on this medicine anymore. And I tell them, look, I don't think cannabis is a good substitute for this medicine, number one, and number two, if you're doing well on it, let's not let it become stigmatized so that we're going we're doing to the pharmaceutical what we've done to the plant, you know.
0: Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And what about for sleep? I've heard that CBD even by itself can be marvelous for sleep. What do you see? Or do you see it better as a mix of this of the CBD and THC?
1: Well, let's let me take that in two parts. The first is cannabis. I think cannabis of all the things that cannabis can treat sleep is the number one. Um, You know, and, and, you know, if we think about it, most adults, particularly older adults, they've got all of this stuff rolled into one big bad ball. Right, I mean, they can't sleep because they're in pain, or they're in more pain because they can't sleep. Sleep is troubling in older folks to be, you know, to begin with. Without pain, uh, there's anxiety, the end of life issues, you know. And it just it can be a big mess. And cannabis can really help us address kind of bits and pieces of all of that. So I think it's really good for that. Um, I think that. We tend to think of insomnia as just kind of insomnia. There are actually a couple of different issues, getting to sleep, staying asleep, all of the above kind of thing. And so the way in which I would approach that depends upon what the particular problems are. Um, Ultimately, the lower the dose, the better, right? And that's true for all medicines. Um, So I think that cannabis is really powerful for that. And um, the second part of the question was about CBD,
0: my husband was saying he works with a guy who pays hundreds and hundreds of dollars for like one bottle of cbd but it knocks him right out and i'm like that seems really crazy and expensive it's
1: um it's very expensive it's also potentially toxic uh, oh something that's not talked about much but not only does cbd interact uh with a number of conventional medications that people may be taking but cbd has been shown uh to potentially cause direct direct liver toxicity really Uh, and part of the issue is that what people are taking is not enough. <laughs> you know, so for all those hundreds of dollars, they're getting just not enough. We have um, very little human data to suggest that CBD is effective. What little data that we do have suggests that in order for it to be effective, you need to use hundreds of milligrams a day, like. 400 to 700 milligrams a day which nobody is doing so all those people out there who are saying oh how wonderful cbd is for them generally speaking are just getting a placebo an expensive placebo as well Um, so cbd is one of these stories that i think that people are very excited about the sellers like to sell it because people sort of imbue it with whatever they need Um, And I think scientists are excited about it because it doesn't cause intoxication. Why that's so important is a little beyond me. There's mountains of data, as we've talked about, for for THC, uh, for treating all of those things that we've talked about. And what really happened starting maybe three, four, five years ago is that people figured out that they could sell CBD more easily than THC. And so everyone started talking about CBD, treating all the things that we had evidence for THC. But there's really no evidence for CBD at this point. Um, Even the few anxiety studies were all stage fright. Well, stage fright doesn't have anything in common with garden variety anxiety um and was only given once right so here take this pill and go give your talk um that's not that's not the right situation um so when people come to me to ask about cbd look this is what i tell them i think that cbd may very well at some point become a useful medication but right now there's just not enough evidence to support it and there are some pretty significant concerns about using it And I don't recommend it at this point.
0: Okay. So when I go to the dispenser, the legal (laughs) dispensary in Mm -hmm. Massachusetts, uh, the one I go to is called CNA. I like it. They're veteran owned and they're awesome. Anyway. And I get the 70% Ecuadorian dark chocolate, which is great because I don't like to eat sugar that much. And it's got the CBD and the THC combination. Are you saying that's not good because it has the CBD or maybe what I should have asked is what is, I thought cannabis was a kind of contains both things. So if you can kind of break down cannabis and then break down, should I just be getting my edibles with just THC?
1: So, so to answer your question, so cannabis naturally produces a whole range of chemicals. THC is the most predominant one, uh, and CBD is, is the next predominant one, but they're miles different, meaning there may be a fair amount of THC and very, very little CBD. Our, our hypothesis at the moment, this is not proven one iota, is that the CBD and some of these other chemicals maybe help the THC work in a way that is in keeping with our expectations of what cannabis does for us. And um, there are a number of um, supporting evidences for that. First of all, that, for example, uh, CBD is known to bind to the cannabinoid receptor, not to activate it, but to change the response to THC.
0: That's what I've heard. Like if you get paranoid from pot, that the CBD helps cancel that out a bit for some people or something. Have you heard that? You know, that's,
1: but there's, there's more to that story, right? So, so to, to the point is, um, yes, if you give somebody pure THC, they can become very intoxicated and it can be very unpleasant. If you give them a small amount of CBD with that, you get a much more cannabis-like response, which is you get intoxicated, but it's not quite so over the top and unpleasant. But the inference that gets made in the cannabis community is that, well, then if you use a lot more CBD, then it will completely cancel out. And we know that that's not true. So when you use ordinary garden variety cannabis, you're getting mostly THC with a tiny, tiny bit of CBD. And that tiny bit of CBD is enough to do... What we expect. The other thing I was going to say, the way, another way we know that that or we think that that entourage uh, is meaningful is if you look at the pharmaceutical dronabinol, which is pure THC, it works, but it's unpleasant and it doesn't work super well. The truth is, if you actually look at products that are one-to-one THC to CBD, but they're used isolates, so it's just THC and CBD, those don't work as well as plain old cannabis either. So there's clearly other stuff in there also that seems to be having an effect. Um, There's just a lot of research that needs to get done to kind of really understand all of these moving pieces and their relationships to each other. So back to your question, in your Peruvian dark chocolate bar, you are getting so little CBD that it is unlikely to harm you in any fashion, but I don't think it's helping you either. So, if you went and got a Peruvian chocolate bar that was essentially 100% THC, which we know it isn't really 100% THC, it's THC plus trace amounts of these other things, I suspect that you would get just the same benefit and you would. You know, if you sat down and said, well, this one's the 70-30 bar and this is the 100% bar, you might find that your own biases make you think one is better than the other. But if I truly broke them up and randomized them in some fashion so you didn't know what you were getting, my suspicion is that you would find them all to be perfectly effective.
0: Oh, wow. You know, it's funny because now that you mention it, I do remember one of the chocolate bars that I got at another dispensary. I think it was just THC. And I don't think I, now that I think, I don't think I noticed a difference. I remember being concerned at first because I'm like, Oh God, am I going to get paranoid? It was, it, it was great. My thing is I need to figure out the amount because if I don't take enough, I don't feel it. But if I take too much, then I get too goofy and then my family gets on my case. So <laughs> I'm have to, so I'm like, I need help. So I'll have to make an appointment with you because I think if you know to get the pain management or to get that relaxation and to get the giddiness but without being like over over the top there was one time I took too much I literally sat on the couch for three hours and I kept like hitting my hands on my um, thighs and I'd lift up my hands I'm like why am I doing this and my husband's like oh my god so that was a mistake but it was really fun laughing for three hours is actually good but. Obviously, yeah, that, and that
1: let me just jump in and say, I think that that's really kind of a good example of the defi- the definitional difference between recreational and medical, that
0: was recreational. Right? Yeah,
1: I mean, I have no problem with people on occasion, but people who are using it for a specific purpose, medical purpose. The approach is very different, and the mindset is very different, and um, and so confusing those two things actually, I think, does a real disservice to both groups. I agree. So, you know, when you're talking about, you know, you need to think about pain management or or sleep management and stuff like that, that's just a very different approach. Whereas you said, you need to really kind of figure out exactly what the right dose is and also potentially the timing of when you take this so that you then get a very repeatable, reliable outcome, which is what you really want on the medical side of things as compared to on the recreational side where it's kind of like, I think I'll take this and see what happens. And hopefully it'll be fun. And that's okay too. It's just very, very different. And right now the industry and even our government is kind of trying to all smush it into one big recreational mess. And I think that that's very bad for patients.
0: Naturally Savvy Podcast is sponsored by morphus for Menopause. What about the adult brain? If I'm hurting my brain.
1: <laughs> that's a really good question. And again, we kind of can go back to some of these long-term studies. And um, what we found is that we don't think that there's a lot of change going on. Um, We don't see these big structural changes that we see when, when people start in their teens. Um, We have seen that, that adults in their fifties who started as teens may in fact have some loss on IQ testing, but it's specific to verbal memory and doesn't include uh, mathematical executive functioning or spatial reasoning. And, and even that small, it's about eight points in the best, best tests. Um, but again, that's also over 40 years and starting as a teenager. So it's a little hard to say, you know, okay, somebody who comes in who's 35, right? And maybe they're going to be, you know, use this for 40 years until there's 75 or right. 85. We don't really have that data yet, but there's really nothing at this point that suggests that there is going to be any significant downside. Right. The most recent and interesting science that's come from uh, McLean here in, in Massachusetts has been looking at... Um, what happens to cognitive function of people who are using this as a medicine as opposed to recreationally? And and what they found is that people's cognitive function gets better.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah,
1: And I think the idea is that being sick makes for cognitive problems, right?
0: Absolutely. So
1: if you are sick and you're having cognitive problems and we give you a medicine that makes you feel better, you might end up being better than you were. You might not be as good as if you didn't have any problems at all, but that's wishful thinking, right? right. So it's interesting to see that, uh, that, that, that the illnesses are better and the cognitive function is better with the cannabis, even though we know that the cannabis makes cognitive function worse acutely in normal, you can hear my air quotes here, <laughs> people without an illness. Um, so yeah, I think that I think we're learning that 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 the cognitive issues really are not uh, a primary problem.
0: Oh, that's good to know. Okay, now I mentioned at the beginning of the interview that I don't like to smoke. I don't like the feeling of it in my lungs. But I, I'm wondering if it's easier to get the right dose through smoking, or can you use someone like me who really doesn't want to smoke? Can Can you get that with an edible or a tincture or a gummy or something? You can talk to us about
1: that sure so here's what i think first of all let's start with smoking um i don't recommend that anybody actually literally smoke meaning don't put this in a pipe or roll a joint and light it on fire why because smoke isn't very good for us now we've got some evidence that suggests that cannabis smoke isn't as bad as tobacco smoke but we have better options for inhalation and so um and so we talk about vaporization now vaporization actually breaks down into two separate categories little oil pens that people call vaporizers those are not actually vaporizers those are little combustion engines and so i recommend to everyone that they stay away from those things they're terrible um We have these other machines that are a little bit larger and a little bit less, you know, sexy looking, but you put the, you put ground up cannabis in them. But the thing that actually makes them different is they've got a little computer that's measuring the temperature and keeping it constant. And so what we want to do is we want to vaporize the cannabis flower at 350 degrees Fahrenheit because that's the temperature at which we get all the medicine, but we're not burning anything and we're not getting any toxins. We want to use the right kind of device so that we're doing this safely. Now, that's an explanation of how you do inhalation. But let's talk about why you use it. People tend to think and you kind of said this sort of is that people have a preference for which way they feel comfortable doing things. And I would argue from a medical point of view that that's not the way to make the choice. That the choice should be made based on what kind of illness we're treating and which approach to cannabis treats it best. So Uh, yes, the thing about inhalation is that it's rapid in its onset, works in, say, 10 to 15 minutes. It's also relatively short in its duration of action, meaning it wears off in about three or four hours. That makes it really good for problems that are either episodic, you don't know when they're coming, or they come on really quickly, really acutely. And a great example of that is a migraine headache right? We don't know when they're coming, but when they come, we also know that the sooner we treat them, the less likely they are to get out of control. So that's when we would want to use inhalation by vaporization. Um, And there are a few other examples, but that's kind of the one that's most obvious to everybody.
0: Right. I need to do that. I get migraines.
1: Edibles are completely the opposite. And so they're really not a good substitute, right? If you you don't want to take an edible and wait an hour hour and a half or to you know by that point things are out of control on the other hand if you have say arthritis in your knee or in your back and you have pain kind of all the time then we actually get better pain control with an edible because it has a long duration of action it's like the long the extended release version of the cannabis medicine we know from studies in pain management in general that short acting medicines in that situation actually can make pain worse because our brains learn to anticipate when it wears off and the pain comes back worse. So something that is a long acting form gets better results. We actually use less of the active ingredient per day, which means that our risk of developing dependence is also lower too. So it's really not a like, what do I wanna take? question and really what is wrong with me and what is the best medicine.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when I think of the word vaporizing, I think of vaping, which is unhealthy, but is that because it's full of crap when people are just vaping like nicotine and, and artificial crap, whatever it is, I don't know. So explain that to us. Well, you
1: know, I think we have to go back to, to what do we mean, right? So vaporization really means that we're converting some sort of a liquid usually into a gas that we can then inhale. So we can do that with nicotine. Um, And for a lot of these substances like nicotine, we also then have to put it in some sort of a liquid to put it into the device. And those liquids can actually be bad for us too. um, and, and, And we saw that with the vape crisis from a few years ago, where people were putting vitamin E in the liquid thinking that it was going to be harmless, but if they had asked me, I could have told them this was not going to be a good thing. Um, so, you know, it depends on what what the active ingredients are and also what the inact supposedly inactive ingredients are. Um, I think the key here is like, you know, what is coming out of the end of the device. Um, with those oil pens, like people call them vapes, I try to call them oil pens to make the, the distinction between that and the true vaporizer. Oh,
0: okay.
1: But the oil pens are basically dumb devices. They, they have the oil and they have a battery and then they have a heating element. So we don't really know what temperature they're, they're operating at. Even the ones like, um, there are some out there that, that sort of let you set the temperature, but they're estimating the temperature. They're not actually measuring it and the estimates can be very inaccurate if you're using sort of multiple puffs or hits at a time Um, so those devices are ripe for some disruption we need somebody to get out there and build a better uh, machine in the meantime the machines that are built around cannabis flower just use better technology because they have more space in the device in which embed this little computer so at this point at this time in history I think that we can vaporize flour very safely, whereas the oils, we just don't have the right sort of devices at this point.
0: Oh, that's really good to know. By the way, what kind of uh, cannabis would you say is helpful for migraines?
1: Ah, Well, now you're getting into a whole nother discussion, which is that around strains or different cannabis. And I'm going to be the one who gets booed out of the room by saying I don't think they matter. Really? Okay. I think that we have lots and lots of good data that indica versus sativa is not a thing that wow. the chemical composition of those strands overlap to such a degree that it is a meaningless difference, except in your marketing, right? I mean, it's good for marketing. "Oh, You know, yes, you need an indica for nighttime because it'll make you sleepy and you won't eat a sativa because you can use it in the daytime. Right. I don't think, but there's no evidence that those things are actually true. It just sells more weed. Um, when we look at specific medical outcomes, we've never been able to show that any particular strain is better than any other. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't people out there that like, you know, uh, you know, Bubba Kush more than silver haze. People can have opinions and preferences, but those are not the same as a medical outcome. Um, If the question is, did it make my migraine better? I think that pretty much any kind of cannabis used properly is going to work. Did I like this one better than that while I was getting my headache better? That's a different question. Um, I often say, look, it's kind of like pizza. Everybody has a, a different preference. Some people like mushrooms, some people like plain, some like pepperoni. At the end of the day, are they all fed? Yes, they're all fed right? That's the yes. outcome. Whether they preferred one or the other, that's that's up to them.
0: Now, what I should have mentioned in your bio, I'm going to mention it now, and we're going to talk a little bit about it, that you are the president of the Association of Cannaboid Specialists, ASC, which aims to educate clinicians, lawmakers and in the industry about best practices and needed tools for proper patient care. So talk to us a little bit about the ACS.
1: Well, so some years ago, when I was you know, doing this, I realized that there weren't a lot of docs out there that were doing this with the kind of care and knowledge that I had tried to accumulate. Um, And that made me upset, made me sad. And I thought, you know, I can't see everybody in the world. Right. So there are people out there that are not getting what they need here from from the doctors. Um, So I started this organization and the goals of the organization really were to educate the doctors who are doing this kind of medicine so that not only do they know what they're doing, but they also understand or are reintroduced to the idea of the ethics of medicine, of taking care of people and not just giving out cards willy nilly because that's really not helping people. Um, And then it morphed a little bit to also include educating other clinicians who don't do this, people we who are on the front lines, because those are the people who need to understand that what this is good for so that they can refer their patients to us as specialists. Um, and then it morphed a little bit further to be focused on lawmakers because the reality here is that the way we handle medical cannabis, not just in Massachusetts, but in all of the states that have it, is really a little cuckoo and it makes it very hard for me as a physician to take care of my patients. You know, if I were writing a prescription for a blood pressure medicine or for an opioid, and then the patient took that prescription down to the CVS, there wouldn't be somebody at CVS that was trying to sell them a chocolate bar instead, right? I find that my patients... I spend a lot of time with my patients and patients leave my virtual office with um, a thorough discussion of what's out there, what's good, what's bad, what they should get. Then they've got it in black and right, white because I write that prescription, even though it doesn't hold any force of law. And so they've got all of this uh background to help them manage going into a dispensary and still the vast majority of them come home with the wrong stuff. And then they ask me, why isn't it working? And then I have to say, well, what are you using? And then they say, well, this, that, and the other thing i say, said, well, this, that, and the other thing isn't what I suggested that you use. How about you try that? Oh, doctor, that works so much better. Thank you. You know, like, but there's this, there's this problem we have that between my office and they're taking the medicine, there's this other group of folk, whose financial incentive is to sell more product and often to derail the medical treatment plan. And I'm not oh, wow. doing it maliciously, but that's kind of the culture of expectation at this point.
0: So at the dispensaries, you're saying that they're leading them to get different products, maybe more expensive products are saying, oh, this one's better.
1: Different products, more products, different types of products. I mean, I've had patients I send in for, you know, get an eighth of an ounce of cannabis flour and they come home with that and then they come home also with a big ball of keef, you know, a big container of keef, and then they sprinkle the keef liberally on their cannabis flour and then they call me up and say, Doc, I feel sick, what's going on?
0: What is keef by the way?
1: Oh, keef is the um is the uh sort of Dust, if you will, it's part of the plant that contains the cannabinoid medicines that you can remove from the actual plant material by rubbing or other means of, of. Um, and if you take that keef and you squish it, you get a sort of solid uh, stuff that's hashish.
0: So they feel sick when that's sprinkled on, and they're like, "What's going on?"
1: Yeah, because I sent them to get some stuff that was sort of 15 to 20 percent THC, but when you add this keef, which is about 50 percent THC. Now you're looking at something that's three to four times more potent than what I had suggested to them. Oh my well, gosh. course they they're getting their butts kicked. That's just the nature of things. But if the, if this had been handled through a prescription, so I had written a prescription that said, you know, go get a 15 to 20% strain and I want you to take two puffs at bedtime, then that wouldn't happen. Right. right. wouldn't be able to be sold the Keef, which then kind of derails everything and makes them sick. Um, and you know this is the way it works in the pharmacy world, right? Is if I write a prescription, then that's what gets sold to them. And you know uh, I'm not perfect; we all make mistakes. Or sometimes this what we write isn't available, or whatever. And then the pharmacist, who's re- very well trained to know when things are right and when they're not, um, gives me a call and says, "Doc, did you mean this?" And I say, "Oh, you know what? So sorry. Let's rewrite this this way." Or I say, yes, actually, you know, I didn't lose my mind. I did mean that. It's a little unusual, but there's here's the reason why we're doing it that way. And that kind of a bi-directional collegial relationship is brilliant, and, and I love it. Um, we don't get anything like that with the dispensaries at this time. In fact, every one of my patients goes home, as I mentioned, with a written prescription. And at the top of that prescription, in a Big red letters in a big red box, it says, Dear Patient Service Advocate, aka Bud Tender, please do not change (laughs) the patient's uh, treatment plan. If you have questions, here's my phone number. Wow. Do you want to know how many phone calls I've gotten in the last 10 years? Zero. Big fat zero, right? That
0: is sick. Oh, my gosh. That is terrible to hear. Well, let me tell you something. Everybody listening, I'm going to be making an appointment with you for myself because I want to get on the right dose and everything, and I am going to... Be very clear with them. This is what I want. Don't try to give me anything else. This is it. So I will be that patient because I don't understand, though, if, if someone's coming to see you and they're spending the time and they're spending the money and you're a medical doctor and you're the expert, why are they going? I don't understand why they wouldn't just fill it the way you said to.
1: I think what you just said makes a lot of sense. very logical. I think that sense... <laughs> Doesn't always apply, and that people are, you know, this is one of the fundamental truths about medicine that I think people do not understand. When you are sick, you are not at your best. You are anxious, you are desperate, and you are often grasping at straws. And so there is, you know, a very strong ability to be taken advantage of in those circumstances even by people who don't think of themselves as 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 taking advantage or contravening the plan um so i think you know you, the patient goes in the dispensary is a little overwhelming the guy behind the counter says and this is a quote actually from a bud tender that was brought back to me by a patient i don't understand what your doctor's talking about forget what he said i'll tell you what to do that's from a very popular, I won't mention them, dispensary. Um, And, you know, that...
0: That's terrible. That
1: that leads us into a bad place. And so I think that um, you were asking about the Association of Cannabinoid Specialists. One of the things that we do along these educational lines is that we now have uh, just about to be released a bud tender training course. Oh, that's great. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of bud tender training courses out there already that cover things like uh compl- you know regulatory compliance and that sort of thing we didn't touch that we didn't want to duplicate that I and mean, we're not the experts on metric or how do you scan the barcodes or stuff like that um, but what we did is we focused on things that bud tenders need to know that we're finding that they don't so things like how to convert ounces to grams how what's the difference between um an, a, dr- a a fluid ounce and a dry weight ounce These are things that are important because patients have questions about, you know, what's in this package and how much am I supposed to be taking? Um, But at the same time, there's this whole professionalism level, which is, you know, when the patient comes in and they say, what do you have for back pain? The answer shouldn't be, you know, blue dream. It should be, you need to talk to a doctor, Right. And if you don't, if you have a doctor, go ask your doctor. And if you don't have a doctor, here's a pre-made pamphlet of all the doctors around town who can help you out. Um, How do you talk to the doctor? We were talking about a second ago how pharmacists call the doctor to have a discussion. They're taught how to do that, right? It's not that they were born knowing this or or to do it. So this tender training course talks about these are the circumstances where you'd want to talk to the doctor. And these are the... Items of information that you should have ahead of time so that you can have a fruitful conversation with the doctor. Things like the patient's name and date of birth. What's, what, was, what, what is it that um, you are concerned about, about the treatment plan? Um, who are you? Where are you calling from? How do I call you back when you in, invariably get my voicemail? You know, all of those sorts of things uh, that, again, as the pharmacist, this is part of their training, but the blood tenders aren't getting any of that.
0: Now I've asked so many questions because this is such an interesting topic for me, and I'm super excited to make an appointment with you. Now, do you have to be in Massachusetts to make an appointment with you?
1: No, um, oh, that's not great. at all. In fact, I see people the world over, um, but obviously, I can't write cards the world over. So it's something where where you know if somebody wants to see me from outside Massachusetts, they need to be aware that you know this becomes. Um, care but not prescribing essentially Um, and so in other in other states we've had patients where you know they essentially get their medical care through us but then they go down to the to the local pot doc who will give them a card and then they get the card Uh, but we do the you know advising and, and and guiding and that sort of thing uh we can write in new hampshire uh we can write in rhode island we can write in vermont um so we've got most of new england covered um but generally when you get further afield then we can't do that
0: sure okay well that's good but you could talk to somebody in california and give oh, them the yeah. idea of what they need and then they could go to the because they're legal there right they can go to their dispensaries and and be tough and say no don't change this this is what i want
1: in the recreational um shops the problem really is that that a lot of the products aren't particularly medically appropriate so like you know You go to the the pot shop and they start saying, you wouldn't like this, you know, cannabis seltzer. And I'm thinking... Yeah,
0: I saw that the other day.
1: You know, (laughs) that's maybe not the best way to take your medicine. Uh, It it, it can work in a pinch, but it wouldn't be my first choice. Uh, You know, so we have to deal with that a little bit, but... um, in my universe, the truth is that part of the problem, and this is part of the conflict between medical and recreational, is that on the medical side, we, what we need is kind of boring old stuff. Like, you know, um, some five milligram uh, gummies would be great, and, um, and some cannabis flour, hopefully not too potent, meaning 15 to 20% is ideal. And with those two things, I could cheat anybody. You know, I don't really need chocolate bars, and I don't need donuts and Rice Krispie treats (laughs) and uh, brownies, and I don't need moon rocks, and I don't need, you know, uh, shatter. I think the concentrates are actually problematic. And this is something you touched on earlier I want to come back to. When I started my practice almost 10 years ago, I was taking care of people who, generally speaking, were naive to cannabis, right? They were coming to get started. And, um, now with recreational legalization, what we're finding is that people are starting themselves on this medicine and then, uh, often finding that it isn't working or they're not getting what they need and they come back. But oftentimes they've already worked themselves up into excessive use. And so I'm finding that my, my practice is shifting a little bit to having to deal with now, what do I do with people who are using too much and, Get them the benefit they want, but at the same time, get them back down into a more healthful and sustainable uh, dose. And that's actually a lot harder than starting from square one. Um, So for people who are listening, I would strongly suggest that you come to me before you start rather than sort of after the fact, because it's just better for you and it's better for the process of getting to where we need to be.
0: So, Dr. Tishner, I'm wondering, because you are an MD, uh, do
1: you take insurance? Fortunately, we don't take insurance. And part of that is because in the cannabis field, in the current s- state of things, uh, we we can't join the network. But... We do provide everyone with a special kind of receipt that they can submit to their insurer. And that doesn't say cannabis on it anywhere. And as a result, people can get reimbursed at the out of network rate. And most people get some of their money back. So it's actually. Oh, that's
0: cool. great. Now, the next time we talk, I'm super excited because we didn't even get to it. Uh, we're going to be talking about cannabis and sex and sexuality. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I wrote a book. It's called clean eating, dirty sex. It's a, it's a play on words. It has to do with, you know, having a healthier sex life through exercise, food, communication with your partner, self care. It's really, really good. It's also a cookbook and it's a memoir. Oh. And it is killing me that this was before, uh, you know, I was aware about cannabis. And I have to say, um, very open on the show. <laughs> Some self pleasuring when you're in under that state is quite lovely. I'll just leave it at that. At any rate,
1: that's absolutely right.
0: <laughs> it's unbelievable. You are welcome back anytime. Was there anything else you wanted to share about the ACS? Because I know I asked so many other questions, but I want to make sure you get to you know tell us what you
1: wanted to tell us. Well, you know, one of the things that we're all um, looking at at the moment is, as you know, uh, Senator Schumer introduced a legalization bill in the Senate a couple weeks back. Yes. Um, and that bill is very interesting because it does a lot for the industry and it tries to do some stuff for uh, communities of color. Um, And those things are okay. But what it really doesn't do is it doesn't contemplate medical at all. It, it, it doesn't really mention patient care. It doesn't do any of the things that we at the ACS think are important. Like it doesn't provide for any prescriptions. It doesn't provide for any moratorium on saying upsell sort of things. Um, it really doesn't address patient care at all. And as I'm fond of pointing out, there are somewhere between 20 and 30 million American recreational cannabis users But there are 180-plus million Americans who are over the age of 55 who will, not may, will develop something that we could treat with cannabis, and we are not really providing for those people. So as you can imagine, the ACS has engaged a lobbyist to try to get Senator Schumer and others to, uh, to address what needs addressing. That takes a fair amount of money. So if anybody is feeling that they've got a few coins in their pockets that they would like to contribute, we would be most grateful. And let me give you the website so people can go check us out, uh, learn what we're about. And if they're feeling uh, generous, then they could contribute. So that website is canaspecialists.org. So canaspecialists.org.
0: Is that one word or is there a dash between nope, can? it's
1: all one word. We used to have one with a dash and it was confusing. So when we could change it, we did. So it's now all panaspecialist.org one word.
0: Wow. Dr. Tischler, this has been amazing. I, you have no idea how excited I am. I can't wait to work with you, you. And I just really admire all the fantastic work that you're doing. And I'm sure this is going to help so many people. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. And I look forward to having you back. There's still more to Thank talk you. about.
1: Absolutely. I would look forward to it.